Uh, As we begin, will you join me in a word of prayer? Our gracious God, as we enter into this space and come from all kinds of different experiences and backgrounds, different places on the spectrum of belief and doubt, different places on the spectrum of happiness, some of us come and we're grateful for answered prayers or a sense that you're more present in our life than we ever imagined it could, it could look like. And then others of us look back to a day when you seemed so real and we wonder if we'll ever get that back. Were we just fooling ourselves? Others, maybe a friend has brought us in here this morning or we just um, are new to things and we wonder, am I, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. Do I even belong here? And some of us come with, with pain, you know, and suffering and struggle this morning. And from all these places, we look to you. Would you make your words come alive for us now? Would you be in this room, present, speaking, joining us, and helping us to understand how we fit in your bigger story? Most of all, help us to know that even though we're more of a mess than we want other people here to know, help us somehow from what, is, what happens here this morning, to walk away knowing that we are also more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined because you move towards broken, messy lives and you seem almost to pounce when we get to the end of our rope and then you hold on to us and you bring us home. Do that now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, this is a passage that is from a letter to the Galatian churches, and it is, it is like the, the passage that is most rich in this whole letter, and then it's this letter that is extremely rich and theologically technical and complex, and I'm, man, it's humbling to try to figure out how to um, make a 60-minute sermon out of this, um, you know, because it really should be about four hours. Um, I heard that groaning. That was wonderful. There's like some legitimate groaning that happened when I said that. That was great. Um, when I was, one of our boys, we have two boys. One of them's uh, 11 and the other's eight. Oh, we have three. Thank you. All right. This is starting off really well. I have three boys. So I take that back. We can edit that out of the podcast. Um, um, so I have, I have two older boys and then a one-year-old who doesn't matter, apparently. And, uh, and, and one of the two older boys, when he was little, he, he would have these phases where he would, be, he would learn a word and he would be into something and he would say that word all the time. So at one point it was ladder. He loved ladders. This is probably because daddy is dangerous and daddy probably let, you know, would help him up ladders for fun. And then we went to the zoo, and um, we were trying to get him to be excited about all the things he's seen behind these cages. And so it's like, hey, kangaroo. And, you know, not much reaction to all these animals we're showing him. Like, oh, there's a lion. Oh, my goodness. It's like a big kitty cat. And we're showing him these animals, and there's a peacock, and there's a kangaroo, and, you know, what all, all the animals we were seeing. There's a giraffe. And then we walked by this, some, some cages that were, like, um, empty and under construction, and all of a sudden he, he starts shouting, Lado, 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 and it was you know this ladder in a cage. It was like the ladder exhibit. He was so excited that the zoo had a ladder on display, you know, and 
And just like you guys laughed immediately, we immediately just all looked at each other and just lost it. I mean, it was hilarious that he's at the zoo and he's obsessed with something that's not germane to the zoo experience. Um, And the Galatian churches that are being addressed in this letter um, are being excited about something and, and, and obsessed with things that are not germane to the Christian experience and the gospel experience. But for Paul, who's writing to them, it's not cute. It's a big problem. And this letter is interesting and because it is the most intense piece of writing in the, in the New Testament, in my opinion, where he's supposed to... There's a format to these kinds of letters in the ancient world and where he's supposed to say the greeting and then launch into all the things he's thankful about. And that's what he does in his other letters. In this one he says, I am astonished. That's how he starts out his Thanksgiving section. I am astonished that you so quickly are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And another point he says, beginning of chapter 3, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And in another place, um, because what he's addressing is, some other teachers have come along and begin to say, um, yeah, you, you got the message right from Paul. You got the... You got, the, some, um, you got some essentials there about faith in Jesus Christ, but faith in Jesus Christ is essential but not sufficient. You also have to add on some of these Jewish markers like um, dietary codes and celebrations and the initiation rite of circumcision. Because remember, Jesus was, was Jewish, and this is the Jewish Christian church, and you've got to add these things on. And Paul saw the danger in this and said, No! You are on the edge of losing all your distinctiveness as a Christian. You're in, on the edge of just, this is a monstrosity. It's about to just blow up if you go down this path. So all these sharp words at one point, because of this, the circumcision issue is what one of the things they're pushing is. He says, I wish that these, these teachers of circumcision would go all the way and castrate themselves. I mean, that's what he says in this letter. Pretty intense stuff. Pretty serious issues coming up in the church of Galatia. Why? Because the gospel is in question. Because the grace of God is in question. Because they're about to lose touch with the very distinctive marker that it is to be a Christian, which is faith alone in Jesus Christ. That you receive the record of Christ, the perfect record of Christ, and all of you who come into faith in Christ Your record is transplanted by his record and you are ushered into the presence and the love of the unforgiving God only through Jesus. And there's no and. It's not Jesus and a few other things I have to make sure that I do in order to be acceptable before God. Very important. It's never Jesus and. And that's our human nature is we're always trying to say and. (laughs) Jesus and. And Paul says Jesus and nothing. So, you know, it's an impossible task to really get into this letter, and that's sort of like a quick flyby of the whole, issue, the whole letter. Today, we're just going to zero in on um, this passage and one word particularly that he pulls out as he's trying to help all these ideas come together. There's a lot of technical theology. There's a lot of this kind of stuff. One word kind of ties it all, all together, and you see it in verse 26 in, or 27 when he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ. He brings it back to baptism. And so we're going to look today at just a a few things that baptism tells you. 
What is, your, what is your baptism, whether you're anticipating baptism, looking forward to it, or remembering your baptism, what does it tell you? It tells you something about your status, your sufficiency, your adoption, and your inheritance. All right, so let's start with status. What, is, what does adoption tell you about your status? In the ancient world, clothing was important. And so when the Apostle Paul says, for all of you who were baptized into Christ, you were, have clothed yourselves with Christ... What is he, why is he using a clothing analogy? Because clothing has everything to do with status. John Ortberg is a, wrote this book called Who Is This Man? It's about Jesus, and he gets into the clothing issue in the ancient world. He says, in Rome, every conceivable aspect of life was used to reflect the race for honor, the race for honor or status. He says, clothes were literally status symbols. If you were not a slave, you could wear what was called a freedman's cap. That showed at least that you were not on the bottom rung. A male citizen from, the, from about the age of 14 was allowed to wear the toga virilis, the garment of manhood. Ironically, the toga was a remarkably in, incommodious garment. Drafty in winter, sticky hot in summer, keeping one hand covered and unusable, difficult to arrange. It had only one value, the proclamation of status. A senator, so that's a whole other status, could wear a purple stripe on his toga, purple being associated with nobility. An equestrian, equestrian, a little lower, couldn't wear the stripe, but was allowed to wear both an expensive toga and gold rings. The equestrian class was sometimes called the order of the rings. You get the idea. Clothing was about status. And what does Paul do? He says, clothe yourself with Christ. All of you who are baptized, when you're talking about baptism, what are you remembering? You're remembering that when you become a Christian, you enter into this level plane where we're all wearing the same thing, where our status is all the same and there's no pecking order, there's no human hierarchies that are developed. And what happens, of course, with the Galatian churches? As soon as they begin to say, Jesus and... They begin to say, Jesus is essential. Faith in Jesus is essential, but not sufficient. You need these other things. As soon as you do that, as soon as you add the list to be acceptable with God, there's no way to begin to avoid hierarchies, pecking order, as soon as you do that. The divisions begin. The lines in the sand are drawn. And the gospel, since it's a status from outside, not internally earned. It's given from the outside. You receive this status. The water just washes over you. People don't baptize themselves. They are baptized. The clothing of Christ is put on you from the outside. And because it's a status that you gain from the outside and not from your own behavior, it always works against pecking orders and hierarchies. In fact, I would say the gospel is the only true method of finding your acceptability in life that doesn't lead automatically to some pecking order or hierarchy. Someone says, oh, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I'm against hierarchies. I'm against classism, racism. I, I'm against discrimination. But somewhere in your life, you have some code that you go by that tells you that you're valid, that you're accountable that you're acceptable. It's your acceptability plan. 
And it's disingenuous to say that that doesn't flow through into how you look at the world and look at everyone else. Everyone's acceptability plan breaks down eventually into some kind of pecking order or hierarchy. You can't get away from it. And if you try to, you're just being disingenuous. You're, you're not, there's a huge cognitive dissonance at the center of your belief about your own acceptability if you think that it doesn't have to translate then to how you view other people. And the gospel says your acceptability plan, your status is given from the outside. It has nothing to do with you. Therefore, it's the only one that can't lead to pecking orders and hierarchies. Everyone wears the same clothes. Everyone has the same status. You're clothed with Christ. Now, Christians, it's interesting. We're going to move on to the sufficiency that baptism teaches us about. But it is interesting, as a side note, that Christians have to be reminded over and over to put on the clothing. The clothing's been given to you. It's not yours. You don't make it yourself. It's handed to you. But there's something where Paul's language often is, we put on the righteousness of Christ. Because for some reason, we're just always, our hearts are always pulling away from an external status that's given to us. We always want to earn it. We always want to say, Jesus, and. And so we're always reminded, put back on the clothing that levels the playing field and says, you all have the same awesome status in Christ. Now, what is... As we move into this analogy of status, there's a great metaphor that Paul introduces us to, and it teaches us everything about sufficiency. How are you sufficient, and how does baptism um, tell you that? In verses um, 25 and um, let's see, 24 and 25, there's, it's hard to tell in our translation a word that's used here that's very important. So the law was put in charge of us until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The words in charge and supervision are, are from the same word, and they bring to the, people, the ancient readers, they brought an immediate clear picture that we don't get from reading that because we don't even see the word. The word is pedagogos, and it would be like if I would say today, it's kind of like a flight attendant. And you'd be like, boom, you understand what a flight attendant is, you understand how it works, you've maybe flown before, you understand the relationship. He says pedagogos, and everybody goes, boom, I'm locked in, you have my attention. Because it's a guardian that, was, that somebody of means would place over their son who was to inherit the whole estate. And this guardian would be like a teacher, so pedagogy, pedagogos, would be a teacher and disciplinarian for a young child growing up. And this would be the time where the, per, the child is not yet there in terms of being able to be a full heir and to be able to inherit and to be able to um, come into his own as an adult legally. And so it was this formative time where he wasn't there yet and he was under the care for a certain time of a pedagogos. Paul's saying that's the period before Christ where God gave the gift of the guardianship, the pedagogos of the law, it was a phase, it had a good purpose, but it had, it had at some point to end so that you could really come into your own, so that we could really come into our own. That's the analogy. I mean, it was crystal clear to them. They would have said, oh, wow, this is interesting to lay this metaphor over the sense of the gospel and the law. It's a sophisticated illustration. It allows for some theological specification. One of the things that it makes clear is that the law, and that's what these... Um, these Jewish Christians coming in and teaching these extra things, 
They're teaching from the law. And what he makes clear is that the law is unable on its own to justify you before God. That's, like, that's one point that comes out of it, that there's no way to really fully be there. That phase needs to end. So why would you go back to the phase that's not even able to bring you into what is yours? Okay, so there's that sense of justification. There's also the sense that the law has this function, and Paul talks about this often, this function of being like a mirror for us. So think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I think functions exactly the same way because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expands the law and shows all the implications of what God's law in the Old Testament should have on our lives, and it's overwhelming, and it seems impossible. And the answer in the, in the response to that is exactly. And at one point, Jesus says, yes, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Baptism reminds us that we've entered out of that phase of the law because the law is so limited it can only in the end tell you how insufficient you are and that you need a sufficiency from the outside it can only bring you to the point of saying how is this even possible the law functions like a mirror and you you stand in front of the mirror and you realize what dirty rags you've been wearing and you say I'm ready to be sufficiently dressed by the righteousness of Christ because I can't do it so when Paul sets it up this way, as this, it's this formal, former phase, it's the guardianship, it's the pedagogos, and he says, but in Christ we've come into our own. We've, I mean, we, it, we've arrived, put the pedagogos be, be, behind us, which of course is what you want to do, that's a natural progression. It sets it up to say, why do you want to go back there? Why are you excited to say, no, but the real thing is back here? All it can do is tell you how insufficient you are. It can't make you sufficient. And you find that to be true in your own lives. Knowing the rules, right, isn't enough. Knowing the rules, it merely convicts you of your insufficiency over time. So the time has come to be clothed with the sufficiency of Christ. So that's the second point thing that baptism reminds us we've made that transition when baptism happens you're you're being you're transitioning out of the old as paul talks about in this passage the elemental spiritual forces of this world into the faith in christ and now here's a couple of parts of this that come really alive adoption and inheritance because what is it when you put the pedagogos beside behind you and you and you come into truly being a child in uh, an, an heir to the inheritance. Well, you can see that um, being a child of God is very richly woven into this passage. It's there in uh, verse 26. It flows all the way into the end in 4 verse 7. This is all about how we are children of God, as we sang earlier. So what's it trying to say? Well, it's trying to say that we're a particular kind of child of God. And baptism functions in the church to tell us something about that, how, what kind of child we are. Do you notice what kind of child we are? The word is adoption. Where is it? I don't have it flagged. Anyway, trust me, it's in there. Adoption to sonship. <laughs> 
to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship in 4 verse 7, 4 verse 5. We're adopted. So this rings true with our experience of the gospel. If you've tried to be a Christian or if you're exploring it and it's not yet making sense, is that it doesn't feel quite right to put on the righteousness of Christ. There's something inside of us that kind of resists it. It's too good to be true. And the way Paul brings that out in this analogy is that it's like a pedagogos. It's like, you know, a son, because back then it wasn't the girls who got the pedagogos, it was the boys. It's like a son who kind of comes into his own and baptism is like graduating out of the pedagogos and coming into your inheritance. But then he says it's like an adopted son. It's like... I'm not even legitimate. It's not even legitimate that I would come into this. How can it be that I am the one that gets this inheritance and comes into this? We're adopted. That's another part of what it means to be baptized. Is baptism is like God's sparkling seal on baptism papers. If or on adoption papers. If we're spiritually adopted, our adoption papers are something, I mean, what child who's adopted signs their own papers and makes it official himself or herself? It, it's not how it works. Somebody authoritative, uh, maybe the parents, there's a, a seal of the state or the government. I know when I got married, there's a seal on the marriage license. Baptism is like that sparkly seal that you look at and says, this is legitimate. My, it, it just keeps calling to you all your life if you're baptized. It's legitimate. You have been adopted. That you are truly a child of God. You are truly the one who then is the heir. You're adopted. Um, You don't ratify your own adoption. Someone from the outside has to ratify it. You don't ratify your own relationship with God. God ratifies it by giving you the gift of baptism. In some ways, this is a really important theological point that has implications on our faith. In a sense, if you come from this tradition of viewing baptism this way and viewing your relationship with God as faith in Christ, you wouldn't say, like, I've heard some people say, I was was saved or I got saved in March of 2008. Well, that's just when, if I said that, that's just when I found out that God sealed my adoption pages uh, 2,000 years ago on the cross. In a sense, when did I get saved? 2,000 years ago, I got saved. I don't, I'm not saved because I finally noticed what God had did 2,000 years ago. I was already saved 2,000 years ago. Who ratifies your relationship with God? Do you have that figured out yet? Have you settled on the fact that you're not going to ratify your own relationship with God? Let God put his seal and convince you as you look at that seal for the rest of your life, as you, as Christians do, remember your baptism. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And then we're heirs. So baptism tells you something about being an heir and about your inheritance. Paul says sonship. And he just said there is neither male nor female. He's saying that as, as it goes with Christians, as it goes with those who are baptized, you all now get to enter into sonship. Men and women get to enter into this role that women didn't get to enter into back then. 
of inheriting the fortune of the family. In the kingdom of God, those who follow Jesus, the inheritance is universal. Men, women, Jews, Gentiles. What is the deal with an inheritance? What Paul is trying to get us to understand is that the gospel, um, when it comes into your life and when it's sealed into your life through baptism, what God is trying to do and what we in the church, what preaching is trying to do and what, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what all of this is trying to do is build up your gospel poise, your confident assurance that the inheritance is yours, that you've um, grown up into the fortune, in a sense. You are in, what, what it, the word heir is used here. What, what are we always talking about when we say someone is an heir? They're an heir to the fortune or to the throne. Yeah, some huge gift. It's going to have power or resources. I like to think of fortune, the inheritance and fortune that you have as a Christian. Um, this is a dangerous time of year for me because the NBA season is about to begin. And uh, so it's, you know, it threatens to come into every single sermon that I preach. And, uh, but I do find this very interesting. There's this thing called Summer League, which I never used to pay attention to. And Summer League is where um, none of the real legit players actually play. They take a break, they're relaxing. And in Summer League, you'll get the same teams that you're familiar with, like the, the Miami Heat will be playing the L.A. Lakers, and they'll be wearing uniforms that are a little different, and you won't recognize anybody on the whole court. Except maybe one or two people. Because it's sort of a proving ground for younger talent, people who aren't, don't have contracts, people who are hoping to get in and who have been scouted and might have something that the team is wondering what they have. Coincidentally, for Kings fans, Jimmer Fredette often plays in the Summer League. It's not, it's not yet proven. As you, maybe you've noticed as you watch him play. He hasn't played so well since we got him, even though everybody's got his jersey. But think about this. LeBron James never plays a minute of Summer League. Dwight Howard, Kobe Bryant, they don't play Summer League games. Summer League is where you're working to prove. You're chasing after a contract that you might get someday. You're trying to prove yourself and show that you can do it. The gospel works against you treating your faith and your life like a proving ground. Like you're someone who doesn't yet have the contract. Like you're someone who hasn't yet come into the inheritance of Christ. You sit back with confidence. You sit back with gospel poise. Like LeBron James. You, you know, look at that guy. He looks so cool and relaxed all the time. Oh man, he's got poise. The gospel gives you calm confidence. The gospel gives you a bedrock stability. The gospel gives you poise of assurance. And your baptism shouts at you to grab a hold of that and to live it out. You don't, live, you don't live your life when you're a Christian and when you've been baptized. You don't live like you're chasing after God accepting you or the world around you accepting you. That's all done. The water, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So baptism points to your status, your sufficiency, your adoption, and your inheritance. What Paul is actually doing here when he writes this is he's using an old baptismal formula. Um, all the evidence points to... I mean, it's possible that that's not what he's doing, but everyone who reads this, scholars and so forth, they, they look at this and they say it seems very much like Paul has inserted 
a few phrases right into the middle of the flow of an argument. He's quoting something. That's what they all say. Verses 27 and 28. So imagine this, is, what we're saying is Paul is using something that they all would have known and, and said or heard said as a, as a group when they were baptized. So he's, he's calling them back to their baptism and saying, remember this. This is who you are. Don't forget the gospel. Remember these words. For all of you who who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And um, so we imagine that being like a baptismal formula that everyone captures in their mind and remembers again, as if Paul was the inventor of, of autocorrect. You know what autocorrect is, right? It's that annoying thing um, in technology where you're typing something and it it's, it's always seems to be there when you don't want it. You're kind of annoyed and you wish it wasn't auto-correcting. Always seems to be getting off. Baptism is like the, like remembering your baptism is like the auto-correct of the gospel in your life. And you need it to be there. And sometimes it is pesky and, and annoying because we love pecking orders and hierarchies. And we love to earn our way to God, quite frankly. And the auto-correct of the baptism says, no, no, Remember. All of you got the same clothes on, same status. All the hier- hierarchies are blown away, male and female, Jew, Gentile, slave-free. No hierarchies, no pecking orders. Gospel confidence, gospel poise. I'm going to invite us to, there's going to be some slides on the screen that are baptismal formulas used by the Church of New Zealand, the Anglican Church of New Zealand. I find them to be brief. That's one reason why I want to use them. But also very, very concise and filled with the richness of historic baptism liturgies. And it's just going to be on the screen as a, as a sort of back and forth that you can choose to just listen to. Or you have, there's a few lines that you can join me with. I encourage you as, you, as you hear this, to think about baptism, your baptism, whether you're anticipating it or remembering it. And what it means, this is an identity-shaping set of words to absorb and to be auto-corrected back to the gospel. So you should have enough time to see the parts that will be for you so that you, know, you don't seem to be saying something that you didn't realize was going to be on the screen. I'm not asking you to do something like that that's disingenuous. But follow along, and if you want to read along and say the words under the category people, then read them. So in this liturgy, someone would present, a friend or a parent would present someone to be baptized, and that sponsor would say, I present, let's say, City Life Church. I present City Life Church to be baptized and in a, in, in a, made a member of the body of Christ, the church. From the beginning, the church has received believers by baptism. Believers' children have also been baptized so that with help and encouragement, they should grow up in Christ and by the grace of God serve Christ all the days of their life. On the day when the apostles first preached the gospel of Christ's resurrection, Peter urged his hearers, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus the Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God may call. So, City Life Church, how do you respond to this promise? I hear God's call and come for baptism. Do you renounce all evil influences and powers that rebel against God? 
Do you trust in Christ's victory, which brings forgiveness, freedom, and life? May God keep you in the way you have chosen. Praise God who made heaven and earth, whose promise endures forever. We thank you, God, for your love in all creation, especially for your gift of water to sustain, refresh, and cleanse all life. We thank you for your covenant with your people Israel. Through the Red Sea waters, you led them to freedom in the promised land. In the waters of the Jordan, your son was baptized by John and anointed with the Holy Spirit. Through the deep waters of death, Jesus fulfilled his baptism. He died to set us free and was raised to be exalted Lord of all. It is Christ who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Amen. Come Holy Spirit. Two more slides. We thank you that through the waters of baptism you cleanse us, renew us by your Spirit, and raise us to new life. In the new covenant, we are made members of your church and share in your eternal kingdom. Through your Holy Spirit, fulfill once more your promises in this water of rebirth. Set apart the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise, glory, and wisdom. Thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever. Amen. This is the baptismal um, bowl that we use right here. This is the water that we would use if we were baptizing today. I wanted to do this litany today because there hasn't been a baptism in a while, and we'll probably do some in December. So it was just kind of good to have a reminder since we haven't had one in a while. But this would be in the point of this liturgy where someone would baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then I would say, God receives you by baptism into the church. Child of God, children of God, Blessed in the Spirit, welcome to the family of Christ. Let us pray. God, thank you for this message. It's challenging and deep. Most of all, I pray that you help us to um, find our gospel identity and acceptability through faith alone in Jesus Christ. As we struggle today from all kinds of different places to figure out how to do that, how to connect the dots, how the penny's going to drop, and we're going to finally get it, We trust your Holy Spirit with that process. So come and breathe your holy wind and fire into our hearts. Baptize us so that we understand the gospel and are struck with humility. And instead of running around guarding what we have and chasing after things in a way to grasp more, We are convinced with gospel poise that we have all we ever needed and we are heirs to the fortune so we can relax, we can follow you, release our time, our money, our energy to whatever you lead. Help us in this journey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.